Oh, dear Lord God, we give you thanks and praise for your very character. We give you thanks and praise for who you are and for the way that you make yourself known to us. We thank you for your name and for revealing your name to us. And we ask that just as you revealed yourself to those ancient Israelites through your servant Moses in those days gone by, we ask that you would today, this day, during this time, reveal yourself again in the study of your name. Make yourself known to us that we might know you and love you and serve you through your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, now, I have titled this um, teaching, What's in a Name? And so we'll look a little bit at what is in a name. And those of you who might know where I would take this from, if you're never sure where I'm taking something from, you can always guess Shakespeare. You might be close. Um, so I'll, I'll give you a little clip of something that um, I can't help but think about when I think about the importance of names. So we'll look at that, and we'll talk about why names are important. And then we'll talk specifically about the name of God, of God himself, that name that he revealed through Moses to the ancient Israelites, that name Yahweh. And we'll look at what, what is so important about his name. Why is that his name? And then we'll look what, at what does this mean um, for us today, and what does it mean um, through Jesus? How, what does the name Yahweh have to do with Jesus himself? So first, let's look. Um, of course, Shakespeare, as I said, is, um, is my inspiration always. But um, there's one particular um, thing that I just could not help but think about when I think of what's in a name. And of course, it's from Franco Zeffirelli's 1968 version of the play Romeo and Juliet, which was a part of my childhood. My parents were such hippies that they loved this. You know, Olivia Hussey with her long, dark hair, and we would watch this and Jesus of Nazareth ad nauseum, really. We were religious and lit uh, literature nerds. Okay, so here we go. Let's play. And that I might touch that cheek. Oh, me. She speaks. Oh, speak again, bright angel. Oh, Romeo, Romeo. Wherefore art thou, Romeo? Deny thy father and refuse thy name. Or if thou wilt not, be but sworn my love and I'll no longer be a Capulet. Shall I hear more or shall I speak? Ah, tis but thy name that is my enemy. Thou art thyself, though, not a Montague. What is Montague? It is no hand, no foot, no arm, no face, nor any other part belonging to a man. Oh, be some other name. What's in a name? That which you call a rose. By any other name would smell as sweet. So Romeo would, were he not Romeo called, retain that dear perfection which he owes without that title. Romeo doff thy name, and for that name which is no part of thee, take all myself. 
Sorry about that extra noise that you hear in the background. I think that. But do you hear her words? I hope you heard her words loud and clear, which essentially she is saying that she, um, that he would um, be just as wonderful if that weren't his name. Do you hear that noise? I wonder where that's coming from. Might be me. Hold on. Yeah, it's, it's usually me or it's the technology. No, it's something else. It's something else. Well, we'll just turn it down if it's coming from the audio up here. Oh, it is. Do you hear that? Well, we'll talk to We'll figure it out. Technology is always a mystery, isn't it? Um, so looking at this divine name and looking at Romeo, what is she saying with Romeo? She's saying, oh, if your name were anything else, you would be just the same. You'd be just as wonderful if your name were something else. And, oh, dear, I wish your name were something else. Because she has just, of course, found out that the young man that she has fallen in love with is her sworn enemy, the sworn enemy of her family. He is a Montague, and she a Capulet, and what will they do? Um, And, of course, in this play, if you know anything about the play, her desire for him to not be a Montague, the desire, the saying, that which were a rose by any other name would smell as sweet, is in fact false, because the whole play would bear witness to the fact that he cannot shed himself of his name. His name is so integrally tied into who he is, and that's part of the tragedy, that she is a Capulet and he a Montague, and he can't just shuffle off being a Montague just because they're in love. And so we see through this wonderful tragedy that names are important. We see this in our own lives. Our names are important. I think here, even at the Advent, we say just before baptism, we say very often, name this child. And the parents get the chance to say the name of the child in the congregation. Well, there's something about that. Parents certainly belabor. What name shall I call my child? Who do I honor? Who do I name this child after? What kind of meaning do we want to have behind this child's name? My very own sister, when she was pregnant with one of her sons, she and her husband were thinking about names for the child, and they were brainstorming. And his criteria was that he would always run the name that she would choose or that he would choose by the middle school teasing factor. He would try his best to make fun of the name as much as he could as if he were a 12-year-old boy, which he was very good at doing. So, of course, my great-grandfather's name, my beloved great-grandfather who just passed away before she had her baby, Willard, his name did not pass the test because it sounded too much like Billiard, which I think is a very smart 12-year-old to think of Billiard, but that's what he thought. He vetoed Willard for that reason. We belabor names. What names do we choose for our children? Well, names in the ancient Near East were very important because they were not just used to refer to individuals, this John or that Sue, but rather that they were an expressed essentiality that disclosed the very person of the personality of the bearer or even the circumstances of his birth. And we see this in some of the patriarchs, for example. We see it in Isaac. Isaac's name means he laughs. And is it because Sarah laughed when she heard from the three mysterious messengers that she in her old age would bear a child? 
possibly. But she says right as she names him, she says other people will laugh because I in my old age have borne him. So there's that idea of laughter surrounding Isaac's birth. And hence his name means he laughs. Another one where the birth is important and then also you see it reflected in his personality is the patriarch Jacob. Jacob is named Jacob, which means he takes by the heel because he was born holding on to the heel of his twin, Esau. And it came to be associated with his personality of a grasper. Well, we see that later on, God changed Jacob's name to Israel. And we see that he does that with the elect. Abram is Abraham. Sarai becomes Sarah. We see it also, too, when there are life-changing circumstances throughout the Old Testament. When someone goes into captivity or exile, Joseph's name is changed in Egypt. Daniel's name is changed in Babylon. Mataniah is changed to Zedekiah by Nebuchadnezzar right before the takeover of the southern kingdom. We see this even holding over into the New Testament. Simon, Peter, Saul, Paul. Names are changed at an important moment to commemorate that moment, to look at the person's new identity. And we see throughout all of Scripture that names then are so important to the actual personality of the bearer. Well, what then do we do with God's own name? Well, God's own name is incredibly important, and we see several names throughout all of Scripture given for the one true God, our God that we worship. One saint and church father said to try to grasp the hidden God through a study of his names is like trying to contain the ocean in the palm of one's hand. I tend to bite off more than I can chew, so hold on, because we're going to look at the name of God himself. And these names, so we see these names throughout scripture for God, but the most clear name, the name that he himself gives for himself is Yahweh. And he shares this name with Moses. And we're going to look at the context and the circumstances surrounding this sharing of his name. But I'd like to take a look just for a moment at some of the different names as we see them in scripture. So in Hebrew, we'll see Elohim in the first chapter of Genesis, God. And that's translated in all our in English translations and especially in the ESV with the word God. Whenever you see that in the English, that's referring to that Hebrew word. We also will see Lord and Adonai is in the Hebrew. What that means is Lord and Master. Lord with that sense of rulership and ownership, um, that possessor, that one to whom respect and awe is due. And that term Lord, which is um, the English translation of that word, When we see it in our English translations, in our English Bibles, especially if you have the ESV, it's Lord with a capital L, lowercase o-r-d. But then the final name, and there are several other names that I think of as more like nicknames for God when he reveals himself in a certain way. You've heard these names most notably in 80s and 90s praise songs, I'm sure. El Shaddai, Jehovah Jireh. All of these names are very important names, but they're all connected to Yahweh, the name of Yahweh, and to the names that are revealed um, you know, in the patri- to the patriarchs in the earlier chapters of Genesis. 
And those names, I like to think of those names as um, nicknames for God that deal with his attributes. How many of us had nicknames given to us by our families when we were growing up based on our different attributes or different things that they thought were funny about us? My own nickname was Doc because I was so serious as a little child with these two red pigtails, and I was so serious because I was always thinking. So they started to call me Doc, like Herr Doctor, Doctor. They, they thought, what is she coming up with in her head? So if you ever see me and I look very solemn, you have to know that's just my person. I'm thinking. People always say, oh, you look so upset. And I'm like, oh, no, I'm thinking. I'm always thinking. There's always something going on. And that solemnness was what gave me that nickname. And I'm sure each one of you has a nickname that someone gave you based on a certain quality of your, that you had at a certain point. Well, some of these names of God, yes, they're true of God, but they're not the way he's, and they are specific points of his own self-revelation. But his once and for all name, we see him giving to Moses, and that is the name Yahweh. And we're going to look at Exodus where he gives it to Moses. But Yahweh is those four letters in Hebrew. Of course, they're backwards, and I'm not going to put the Hebrew up there. I wish I were Mark Genelet, in which case I would, but... You'll have to ask him if you want the Hebrew written out. But, of course, in the Hebrew, the consonants are the what we signify with the Y-H-W-H. And in Hebrew, those would have been pointed with vowels. Remember, in Hebrew, the vowels were not actual letters, but they were dots surrounding the consonants to tell you how to pronounce the consonants and which words the consonants referred to. So Yahweh was then um, pointed out with vowels, and I'll explain that in a minute. But in our English translations, we always see it, especially in the ESV, they do a very good job of pointing out where it says Yahweh, where in the Old Testament they had meant Yahweh, and they they wrote it out with capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Well, this, um, this divine name is something that was so special and so holy to the Israelites, they saw it as being so integral to God himself that they began to associate the name of God with the very presence of God himself. And that very presence, of course, demanded reverence and awe in in the present. You know, his holiness demands our reverence, our worship, and our awe. And the very pious Jews began to associate that also, that awe in God's holy presence, with his holy name. And so they no longer would pronounce the divine name, Yahweh, when they would read in their synagogue, they would read scripture, and they would no longer pronounce the name. And then it began to be thought that no one knew the actual pronunciation anymore. And when they wrote it out in their scriptures, when the scribes would copy the name and write it out, the vowels were changed out of reverence for the holy name of God. And so the vowels that we see, that we use when we say Yahweh, are the vowels actually for the word Adonai. And gradually when they spoke the name of God in the synagogue, they would say Adonai, and then they would write so that the vowels were for Adonai, even surrounding the name Yahweh, so that an unassuming person reading or saying the scriptures would not be in danger of pronouncing correctly the divine name And then they'd be um, struck down right there. So it was actually a measure of protection for those who are seeking to read scripture. 
We even see Jesus using these circumlocutions for God and his name when he speaks in the first century. We see that even in our scriptures in Luke and Matthew. Um, Jesus calls, um, it says heaven for God and talks about the power rather than talking about Yahweh himself out of respect, out of reverence, and out of awe. So what does this name mean then? It's a mystery. All of this, I got up here just to tell you it's a mystery. All of that, Deborah. But the divine name is, in fact, a verb. It is linguistically the verb to be. And so when we see Yahweh, what it is, is it really is he is. God is. What does that mean except that there is this sense of his um, self-existence? Throughout the ancient Near East, gods would define themselves or in reference to something else. The God of lightning, the God of this, the God of that. Yahweh defines himself and makes himself known in reference to nothing in the created order. He is and he stands alone. And in that very sense of his name, we get this transcendence. And that's always when you hear of transcendence and imminence. I often, in my childish ways, think of Sesame Street and this one interaction where the Muppets would say, near and far. Well, transcendence is far. God's distance from us, his holiness, his removal from the created order, his otherness, and the nearness is his imminence, his care, his loving protection, his knowledge of every intimate detail of our lives. He is close to us, and yet he is completely other at the same time. He is both near and far, and so in this name we see his farness, his transcendence. He, has, um, no, he is not dependent on anyone or anything else. Then we also see that he's eternal in his existence. There are past and future references intimated in this verb to be, that he was He is and he will be God of the past, God of the present, and God of the future. He is eternal. And he, like his son Jesus, as it says in Hebrews, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that sameness we refer to in theological terms. He is immutable, unchangeable. And what that means is that he is trustworthy. As we know him, as he is revealed in scripture, he is worthy of our trust because he will not ever change. His character is unchanging. Well, so what does that mean? What is his character anyway? And we're going to look now at what the name Yahweh shows us about the character of this God that we worship. And we see this in the context where um, God first reveals his name. God first reveals his name to Moses at the burning bush. Moses is there on the mountain. He's looking after the flocks of his father-in-law. And God says to him what his name is. Because God has called him to go and be God's representative to the people of Israel as they are enslaved in Egypt. God calls Moses to go as a deliverer. And poor Moses says, who am I? They're not going to listen to me. What am I going to do? And God basically says, it doesn't matter who you are. It matters who I am. 
And so God says to Moses, I am who I am. Moses has asked him for his name. And he says, I am who I am. And he says, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. And so this name is given to Moses as an indicator that this God is the same God of the, of the fathers of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the people of Israel will recognize him that way. But he's revealing more about himself. And in this context, we see that God's own self-revelation, that disclosure of who he is to Moses, first of all means that he is present with Moses. That as Moses will stand, and he does stand before Pharaoh, terrified, completely powerless, unable in his own strength to save this people that he came to deliver, God, by saying, I am, and I sent you, is saying that he, the eternal, powerful, omnipotent one, will be there. And that presence is not just to make Moses feel good, I'm not alone in this, but rather to make him know that one who is mighty to save, one who is all-powerful, all-capable, awesome, is there with him and will deliver him and his people. So that first meaning that we see from this context is that God is present with Moses, mighty to save. He will be with him. He will strengthen him. And indeed, we see that throughout the narrative when Moses is there in Egypt, that all of those plagues are sent by God as a way of softening Pharaoh's heart and causing him to release the people of Israel. So um, there's that context. Then there's a second context within the book of Exodus where God reveals himself and reveals his name specifically. And this context is interesting. I'm going to show you a little clip from something that you might help jog your memory about this context. So Moses has now, fast forward, they were delivered out of Egypt. Moses is now there in the desert. And um, the people of Israel are there as well. They've been grumbling. They're tired. Their feet are sore. They've stopped at Mount Sinai. Is, you know, Moses goes up for 40 days and 40 nights, and he's gone because he's receiving the law, the Ten Commandments, from God. He's receiving all this information from them, from God for them. And what happens? Well, oh, here, let's wait. We want to get the, and please forgive the audio. We might have a little bit of the same problem, but. Anybody know about that? Well, we'll just see. I think this will be louder. Woe unto thee, O Israel! You have sinned a great sin in the sight of God. You are not worthy to receive these Ten Commandments. You take too much upon yourself. There you have a great picture right there of what it is that they've done. Do you remember this episode, this incident in the life of the Israelites? They were there at the bottom of the mountain, and of course Cecil B. DeMille's famous movie with Charlton Heston is one of the great one of the greats and a great way of seeing this and saying this really happened. Um, that's one of the things I love about Bible films. But 
So there's that golden cap. And did you see Aaron quick put, put the instrument away? Aaron says, when he says to, when Moses says what happened, Aaron said, oh, I just put all the gold in, a fire, in the fire and out popped the golden calf, basically. But we know that he fashioned the golden calf out of the molten gold that he had collected from the Israelites. And they had asked him to do this because they said, who is this man, Moses? We're going to die in the desert unless you do something. So he made this golden calf and they started to worship the golden calf. And God on the mountain knows, of course, what's going on. And he says to Moses, you better get down there quick because something's happening. And forget about it. You can forget about the law. You can forget about the covenant. I'm done with this people. This is it. They are so sinful and rebellious. And Moses, of course, comes down. He breaks the tablets. And in Cecil B. DeMille's interpretation, which is wonderful, he throws them at the golden calf and the calf explodes, which may or may not have been what happened. But that's one of the great things about film. You get to interpret it. Um, So in this, Moses has just come down the mountain, thrown away the law, thrown away the covenant that God made with his people. And then he goes back up on the mountain. And he says, oh, what am I going to do? And God promises him that the covenant is still in place. He says, go make more tablets. Come back on the mountain. And then Moses says to God, please show me your glory. Isn't that interesting that even in the midst of this very lowest point, this point of complete apostasy on the part of Israel, God deigns to reveal himself to Moses and to the people of Israel through Moses. And the way he does it, the way that he responds to Moses, is he says, Moses says, show me your glory. And God says, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and then I will proclaim my name, the Lord. And then he gives this exposition about what his name means and how his name relates to his character. He says, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. And he says, you know, you can't see my face because you won't live. I'm going to pass by. I'm going to cover you. You won't see. And then we see that in the next chapter, he does this. He goes before him and he proclaims his name. He says, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation from Exodus 34. So you see that God's name, Yahweh, this covenantal name, this mystery, mysterious divine name that's in fact a verb that communicates his transcendence, his farness, his otherness, his holiness also communicates his nearness. And we see it in this exposition of his own character. He's commenting on who he is. And he says first and foremost that he is compassionate. He is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And you see this quality of God's mercy, Yahweh's mercy, um, in that very covenantal love that he makes a covenant with the sinful people. He deigns to keep not only the people's part of the covenant, uh, not only his own part of the covenant, but also the people's part of the covenant. So that when his people fail, 
he then allows his own perfection and his own holiness to fulfill their lack and to make up for their lack. And so you see this despite their disobedience, right in this moment of the golden calf, despite this, he is still faithful and loving and he extends to them his great mercy and his great love. And so you'll hear and you'll see all throughout the Old Testament, this passage, this very passage, it's repeated and echoed like these ripples in a pond that God's name and the attributes associated with his name, Yahweh, ripple throughout the Old Testament. You see it in the prayer of Ezra in Nehemiah chapter 9, in the prayer of Daniel in chapter 9 of Daniel, in David's Psalms, in Psalm 51, that famous psalm where he asks for God's forgiveness after his sin with Bathsheba. He asks and he predicates his asking on the divine character that divine character of mercy and steadfast love. And so he asks for forgiveness based on who God is. And he reminds God of that. And he says, you are loving and forgiving. You are merciful. You are faithful. Will you forgive and have mercy on me? And so, well, what about the New Testament in this? What does this have to do with Jesus and with us? If this is all about Israel, and the truth is it's not just about Israel, because we see that as this word, remember how we had those words on the screen that said um, God, Adonai, um, Lord, and how did that word Lord end up translated into the New Testament? Well, you see, all of the Old Testament scriptures were translated into Greek. For the Jews throughout the ancient Near East that could no longer speak Hebrew. And so they were able to read their scripture in Greek. And when it was translated into Greek, the word Lord, the word Yahweh or Adonai, was both of them were translated into the word kurios, which is what we say in our liturgy when we say, Lord, have mercy. Do you ever look in the prayer book and see that other term for Lord? Kurios. Or do you hear it in Kyrie? Kyrie eleison. Well, that is the Greek word for Lord. And you see that word for Lord all throughout the New Testament. And you see it, especially after Jesus' resurrection and ascension in the community of faith. Those newborn baby Christians would say, Jesus is Lord. And that was their confession of faith. You know, in church we confess our faith through the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed. Well, those weren't written yet. Those weren't compiled yet by the apostles and the early church fathers. And so the earliest confession of faith in Jesus was Jesus is Lord. And by saying Jesus is Lord, as we see in Romans, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And then in 1 Corinthians, no one can say, make that Christian confession, Jesus is Lord without the Holy Spirit. So we see that confession. Jesus is Lord is the way that his first followers and believers recognize that in Jesus, Yahweh had revealed himself in the flesh. In Jesus, all of that mercy, all of that holiness, that farness and that nearness was so saliently present. There in Jesus, he who was equal to Yahweh, who is God himself, had come to earth in the flesh. 
And not only had he come to earth in the flesh, but he also makes these, um, and not only did those first believers say this about him, but Jesus himself said this about his very own self. He said that he was equal with Yahweh, with the great I am. And the way that he does this is in the Gospel of John. There are all these famous I am statements. I am the great shepherd. I am the bread from heaven. I am the resurrection and the life. But there are also these I am statements in John's Gospel that have no object, that where Jesus just says, I am. And you see it. Jesus said to them, when you have seen When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am. And then Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus here clearly claims a divine nature for his own self. He says, I am equal with Yahweh. I existed before the creation of the world. And I am He. In me, he is present to you. And we know that God is present in Yahweh, uh, that Yahweh is present in Jesus because we see in him God's own character and nature. We see in Jesus both God's justice and his mercy. That Jesus is the Holy One, the only righteous man to have lived. He is the spotless lamb, the sinless one, the righteous one, the only one righteous enough to judge and he will one day return to judge every human being that ever lived we will stand before him and we will stand before his spotless righteousness and there for us for all those who are um, fallen creatures we will stand and we will know our sinfulness we will know um, even if we haven't known it in this life that condemnation that justly ought to be ours And yet, for those of us who believe in Jesus, as we stand there, we know that Jesus is not just the spotless one, um, the righteous one, the judge, but he is also that perfect embodiment of God's own character of mercy and compassion. That in Jesus himself, God is near to us. He sees and he knows us, and he has mercy on us. He loves us. And in Jesus, he has sent the one, the only one who could die for us to redeem us from our sins so that on that last day we will stand and we will say, no, I believe in him and his righteousness is my righteousness. And we will know not condemnation, but that peace that passes all understanding. And so because we look to Jesus in faith, we are saved. And as we look to him in faith, We are ourselves trusting in that graciousness, that character of Yahweh that is revealed to Moses and to the ancient Israelites that we see echoed throughout all of Scripture and that we know most tangibly, most saliently, most personally in Jesus Christ our Lord. And so for that and for his own life and his death for us, we can say thanks be to God. I'm curious, the Jehovah Witnesses make such a big deal about the name Jehovah. Oh, yeah. And why? What it, 
What is that name? Oh, I can answer that. Well, Jehovah is a funny thing because Jehovah does not actually, we don't think that the ancient Israelites ever used the word Jehovah. It's actually the vowels for Jehovah. It, it comes from the name Yahweh. You know, if you were to look at this, um, this moniker down here, it comes from these same consonants because a Y is like a J and a V is like a, a W. So those two consonants, especially in German, are very similar. And so they interpreted Yahweh, and they didn't know what vowels to put in there. So they were like, yeah, Yehovah. And they started to use it. So it doesn't actually go back to the ancient Israelites. It's a modern um, invention that rose to, to popularity in the 19th century. But uh, among biblical scholars who really think that it's not an accurate pronunciation of the divine name, they don't use it anymore. So it's fallen out of favor. Anyone else? Deborah, when Yahweh was talking to Moses, yeah, and he said he would visit the iniquity of the fathers mm-hmm. even until the third and the fourth generation. Yeah. That doesn't sound very merciful. I know. It doesn't. And I'm so glad you said that because I didn't really address it. It's there. And you see it echoed. What's interesting, if you, were to, you see it echoed a little bit in the Old Testament, you hear it said again. But what you don't, but you don't hear it said nearly and repeated nearly as often as the character of God's mercy and His steadfastness. Perfect example is Psalm 103. If you were to look at Psalm 103, Psalm 103 doesn't even talk about that, but it's clearly echoing Exodus um, 34, and so it talks about um, uh, the Lord made His ways known to Moses. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy, slow to anger, and of great kindness. He will not always accuse us, nor will he keep his anger forever. And that whole psalm, if you look at that psalm, sometimes at the end of the psalm, you'll have the psalm talking about God's mercy, but then it will talk about judgment for the wicked. Well, again, this psalm does not do that, and it's such a close echo of Exodus 34. And one of the other things about that, and here, let me just look to it, is that um, if you see it says, Keeping steadfast love for thousands. And what's thought about the thousands? It's thought that it's meant thousands of generations there because the generations are repeated. So it talks about the third and fourth generation, and yet God's mercy extends far beyond the judgment. So there's that sense in which the judgment is not, um, not everlasting the way his mercy is. And then there's also the sense in which you don't hear the echoes, as much throughout Scripture, you hear it maybe once or twice, but not the c- countless echoes of God's mercy. Psalm 103 doesn't even have mention of the judgment. You look at, um, I love the life of Jonah, and the book of Jonah is such comic relief, because remember God sends Jonah out to preach um, judgment to Nineveh and to say that they'll be destroyed if they don't repent. And Jonah runs in the opposite direction because he knows who God is. He knows his character of steadfast love and mercy, and he says, I'm not going to go and preach repentance because if they repent, you, you'll have mercy on them. And, and so, remember, he runs in the opposite direction. He goes to the sea. He's swallowed by the whale. And yet God still brings him back and says, no, now go. And he goes and then he sulks under the tree because he's so mad that Yahweh's going to forgive them. And the book ends with this open question. Will Jonah come around and realize that God is forgiving even of the enemies of Israel. God is forgiving not just for the people of Israel, but for all nations. So you see that forgiveness 
I really think forgiveness has the last word. And, um, and then there's that question of standing before God in righteousness, in the righteousness of Christ. Through faith in Jesus Christ, as we stand before God and ought to justly be judged for our sins, every single one of us, yet he looks on Jesus because we have faith in him. It's like we say, no, Jesus, you stand for me. I have faith that your works are enough for me. And God looks in at us and sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Um, and we're forgiven. And our sins are forgotten. So I hope that's helpful. But thank you for bringing that up. It's so totally in there. Mary. Deborah, in looking at that passage, I was just wondering if it could be saying that he forgives us, but that isn't going to keep our sins from affecting our children and our children's children and on yeah. down the line. There, there is a question about, and we see this even in our lives, we might know forgiveness, but we might still experience the consequences of our negative actions. And our negative actions can still have consequences for those around us. You know, uh, uh, I always think of the example of drunk driving. You know, if we were in an ac- if we were drinking, we were in an accident, that accident has ramifications for other people. We might repent and be forgiven and have faith in Jesus and our sin is forgotten in God's eyes. And yet in this life, we're still, there's still going to be consequences. Um, we'll know forgiveness and we'll know peace. And we'll, you know, there will be the beginning of forgiveness in other relationships. But there will still be, at times, consequences in this life. But then I will also say Jesus, in John chapter 9, when he talks about the blind man, I don't know if you know that passage, Jesus comes in, there's a blind man, and they say, who sinned, him or his parents? And Jesus said, no. So he there essentially is saying, no, you cannot say it's an equation and look at suffering and say this suffering was caused by this sin or caused by this this." grandparents sin he cuts it off and he says no this suffering is for god's glory so i hope i hope that helps i don't know that we have time for any more questions but i don't know that there are any let's pray oh dear lord god we give you thanks and praise for your divine character for your love and your mercy they extend eternally just like you exist before all time and Um, You extend on through the future. You are the bedrock of our whole creation. We would not be without you. And we would not be in your presence as forgiven and free people without your son, Jesus. So we give you thanks for your own character and your character revealed to us through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen.